somebody in the break and they said, uh, I was at a, a conference with about 500 business leaders and they said, we didn't think there were 500 Christians in Southern California. <laughs> well, they don't believe there are 500 Christians in Washington either, so <laughs> kind of cuts both ways. But, uh, got, you know, got ready to get on the airplane, supposed to get back here at a decent hour, and every one of you have had this experience, right? So we all boarded, and they said, oh, everybody has to get off the airplane. Somebody broke the toilet, and you can't fly from L.A. to Washington without a toilet. So we all got off. They said, oh, don't worry. Take 30 minutes to fix it. 30 minutes later, they come on and say, it's going to take a little longer, maybe another hour. And then another hour comes on. Well, it's going to take another hour. Uh, but fortunately, we finally did get to leave and uh, made it back uh, in the wee hours of the morning. So, uh, so I am really glad to be here. Let me start by <coughs> reading our uh, text this morning out of the book of Jeremiah. It's Jeremiah 29, verses 5 through 7, if you want to follow along. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too might have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look at this uh, text, part of your holy word, we would pray that you would be with us this morning. Father, we would be bold enough to ask that uh, we could come or leave this place different than we came, not because of anything I say, but because your Holy Spirit is in our midst, opening our eyes and our ears and our hearts to what you want to tell us this morning. We just thank you for all your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine, if you will, a great tent city full of refugees, with, with tents as far as the eye can see. And these refugees in this tent city are on the edge of the greatest city in the world. Unfortunately, these refugees have seen things people should have never had to see. They saw an invading army come into their country, destroy their city, kill our friends, neighbors, relatives, and worse, they saw that invading army destroy the most holy place of their religion. Sounds like it could happen today. But the reality is this story took place in 588 B.C. The great city was the city of Babylon. And the refugees were the children of Israel. You see, what happened when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. He had a plan to keep them from rising up again against him. So he gathered together all the best and the brightest, all the leaders, all the young people that were up and coming and would be future leaders, and he took them, forced them to march hundreds and hundreds of miles to the city of Babylon, where then he didn't make them slaves, he would just tell them to... to to go on into the city and find a job, and literally they'd be assimilated into the culture of Babylon. It was a great strategy. It worked extremely well for Nebuchadnezzar for many years. But now we've got the, the Israelites 
and they are refusing to go into the city. They're going to hunker down outside the city in this refugee camp. And there are prophets in their midst. Later we'll find out there are false prophets. But there are prophets in their midst that say, don't go down into that evil city. That's bad stuff down there. Don't go down there. Instead, let's wait here because God's going to raise up an army. And that army is going to come and he's going to smite these terrible uh, people and, and destroy them. And we'll be able to go back to Israel. And so that's where they are. They're sitting up there, kind of depressed, waiting on this army. The army doesn't come. Instead, a letter comes from the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was an old dude, so he got left behind. He he wasn't taken into captivity with the rest of them. He writes in this letter, and basically what he's telling them is, those prophets you've been listening to are false prophets. That God, yes, God still cares for you, still has a plan for you. But that's the good news. The bad news is you're not leaving here anytime soon. In fact, you're going to be here for 70 years. Then he goes on and reminds them of something, which I think is one of the most significant passages in the Old Testament for us to hear as Christians in the 21st century. He reminds them of their original calling, and that calling really has two pieces. In fact, I would suggest that what he's doing is reminding them of something that was written in Genesis, in the first chapter of Genesis. See, they didn't have the whole Old Testament we had, but they certainly had the books of Moses. So they would have had this. And I suggest to you this morning that they knew it much better than we know it. And when they heard this passage, the first thing they thought about was Genesis 1.28. Because, see, Genesis 1.28 is at the end of creation on the sixth day, God literally comes to Adam and Eve and gives them their job description. He tells them, this is why you were made. This is what I made you to do. Let me read it. Genesis 1.28. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over everything that moves upon the ground. Now, what does that sound like? What did we just read from Jeremiah told him? Give your daughters and sons in marriage. Multiply here. Fill this part of the earth with my images. Right? The first part of that. And the second part is the part I really want to talk to you about this morning. It's this idea of subduing the earth. Taking dominion. And what Jeremiah is telling them, let me show you what that looks like when you're not in charge. When you're a minority, when you're a minority that's not thought too well of by the rest of society. And that's why I think this is so important for us as Christians today, because believe it or not, that's who we are. We're strangers in a strange land. This is not a Christian nation anymore, if you haven't noticed. And I believe it's going to get worse before it gets better. And there's a tendency in the church today to want to hunker down until Jesus comes and not worry about what's happening in the culture. But Jeremiah is telling them they're just the opposite. And this message that was told to the Israelites of the 5th century, 6th century B.C. echoes down through the centuries to you and I today in the 21st century. And I believe we need to heed this message. See, Jeremiah was reminding them of their original calling. This calling to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his images. Let me read you what Nancy Percy in her book, Total Truth writes about this passage in Genesis. She says this, 
The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families, churches, schools, cities, governments, laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world. Plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. This passage is sometimes called the cultural mandate because it tells us that our original purpose was to create culture, build civilizations, nothing less. You see, the garden where Adam and Eve were, this is before the fall, was perfect, but it wasn't finished. Let me say that again. The garden was perfect, but it wasn't finished. If Adam and Eve had not sinned, would they just lived in the garden forever? No, I don't think they would have. What would have happened? They would have moved out into the rest of the earth and done what? Filled it with God's images and subdued it. Literally, the word in Hebrew that's translated subdued in most of our uh, Bibles means to make the earth useful for human beings, benefit and enjoyment. So that's what we need to say when we say subdue the earth. Christopher Wright, in his incredible book, The Mission of God's People, says this. When God created the earth, he created human beings in his own image with the express mission of ruling over creation by caring for it, a task modeled on the kingship of God himself. The human mission has never been rescinded. And Christians have not been given some, other, some exemption on the grounds that they have something else better to do. Yet, the reality is simply this. Most evangelical Christians today don't see salvation as a calling back to this original purpose, this original mission. Instead, they see their salvation simply as a bus ticket to heaven. Once I've got the bus ticket, all I have to do is sit here and wait for the bus to come. What I do here doesn't really matter, most of them think. I can play video games till the bus gets here, it doesn't matter. The scripture tells us a very, very different story. You were bought with the price. You were taken out of darkness into light, out of death into life for a reason. And part of that reason is what God wants you to do in the here and now. He's calling you to fulfill this original purpose. See, see, the gospel brings us back to our original calling. And the problem, a lot of people ask me, Hugh, why, why, how, how have we gotten so far off track? You know, what's happened to the church? But if you look at the last hundred years, we've really kind of withdrawn. And what I would suggest is one of the things we don't understand is this bigger, grand narrative that the Bible paints. This, this meta-narrative of redemption, that how God's working through the world, through time, to restore his creation. We at the Institute often call it the four-chapter gospel, and we break it into four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation explains the way things uh, were. The fall explains the way things are. Redemption shows the way things could be. And the restoration shows the way things are going to be. But see, the problem in most churches today is they've taken that four-chapter gospel and they've truncated it to two chapters. And all they talk about is fall and redemption. Well, if you only talk about those two things, you don't know why we were created and you don't know where we're going to end up. You lose the first chapter and the last chapter. And what happens, the gospel becomes all about me. 
God died for me to save me from my sins. And we lose this bigger picture of what God is doing, the restoration of the entire cosmos. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, said this about the fourth chapter gospel and this, the, the fact that we've truncated it in two chapters. He said, we have made the gospel into a gospel of sin management. That's unfortunate. Now, so if all that's true, and we want to expand this gospel to four chapters, how does that work? How does this all play out in our lives? I think we have to go back to this passage and look at it a little closer. We said that um, <clears throat> Jeremiah tells them we should work for the peace and prosperity of the city that I've taken you into exile because if it prospers, you prosper. If you look at that passage in the original Hebrew, it literally, when we translate, when we have peace and prosperity, there's only one word. And that one word is shalom, the Jewish word shalom. So it literally says work for the shalom of the city. Now, we normally translate shalom as peace, and this, in most Bibles they translate in this passage peace and prosperity. But peace is a very, uh, it's an unfortunately narrow explanation of what the word shalom really means. So the word shalom has much more impact than that. And I think it's something that we should know. We should know how it fits in this passage. And really, you should look at other passages in the scripture as well. Let me read you the best um, definition I have of shalom. Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. Shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The full flourishing of human life in all respects, just as God intended. That's a little bit more than just peace, stopping war. See, there was perfect shalom in the garden before the fall. And let me tell you, there'll be perfect shalom in that last chapter, that last chapter of restoration. When we stand in a new heaven and new earth and live with Jesus forever, there once again will be perfect shalom. That's why we call that last chapter restoration, because what's being restored? Shalom is being restored. Things will be exactly as God had intended. See, what Jeremiah is telling these Israelites and, and, and as a secondary audience telling us is that what we have been called to do is go out as we live out our lives and reweave shalom. Think of, think of God's creation as this incredibly beautiful tapestry with thousands and thousands of threads just intertwined and, and, and it paints this gorgeous, beautiful picture. That's the way it was before the fall, perfect shalom. But then what happens? Sin comes into the world and the tapestry, shalom, begins to unravel. Now there's still some of it there, but most of it's falling apart. So what God's calling each one of us to do, because we've had an encounter with the prince of shalom, right? We often call Jesus the prince of peace. That's wrong. He's the prince of shalom. Jesus is not a prince that's going to come back and just stop people from fighting. He's the prince that's going to come back and restore all things. 
going to make everything the way it was supposed to be. In fact, it's an interesting um, exercise. If you go back to the Old Testament, a lot of places where it says peace, put this definition of shalom in there, it really changes a lot of things. So we've had an encounter with the Prince of Shalom. And because of that encounter, we have been redeemed in a number of relationships. Our relationship with the Creator has been redeemed. Our relationship with ourselves have been redeemed. Our relationship with one another has been redeemed. And our relationship with the, with, the, with the creation around us has also been redeemed. And we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit working within us to go out into the workplace, to go out into the community, to work in our families. The Apostle Paul says, everything you do, do to the glory of God. So it's just not the work you do in vacation. That's very important. But all the work you do is to be done for the glory of God and done in a way that reweaves shalom. See, the gospel calls us back to our original calling, calls us back to God's original mission. See, God put us here to do something, and that something was to go out and create more and a better place to bring about flourishing, not only for us, not only for our family, but for everyone. We're called to bring about flourishing for people who will never know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're still called to do that. We're called to engage with the culture and make it a better place. And let me tell you, Christians for 1,900 years have done that. It's only in the last 100 years we've kind of forgotten about it. You look at the history of Western civilization, and almost without exception, every important thing that's been done, every hospital that's been created, uh, universities, um, the abolishment of slavery, every major thing you can think of was done by Christians who understood this calling to reweave shalom in their communities through the work of their hands to the point that for the most part of history, Christians have been looked at even by people who didn't agree with us and they may have kind of looked at those strange people over there, but the place that we live would be a worse place if they weren't here. Do they say that about your church today? One of the problems with us as Christians today is we have lost track of that idea. We've lost track of that we're supposed to be a positive influence. What we are known for today as a church, and I hate to say this, but it's true, is we are known for what we're against, not what we're for. We need to change that. Um, an, an author that um, a biblical scholar has written for us writes this about this idea of flourishing. He says that all human behavior, when analyzed deeply enough, will be found to be motivated by the desire for life and flourishing, individually and corporately. Every person has a powerful, relentless drive to experience shalom through right relationships with God, with our families, with our communities, and with the physical creation. This is because shalom was God's original design for his creation. And as we will see, restoration of shalom is his design for redemption. You've been redeemed to go out and reweave shalom, to bring about flourishing to all those people that are within your area of influence. See, because... Um, 
Flourishing is important. It's what we were made to do. It's why God made us. Now, let me give a little aside here, and this is important. Flourishing has gotten to be a very popular word, and you hear it a lot. And I don't want you to go away from here with a misunderstanding because there are people that are using flourishing in a very cultural way as opposed to I'm using it in a very biblical way. And what's the difference? It's really pretty simple. It's all about the motivation of your heart. You see, a lot of people in the culture today are are, are talking about flourishing that glorifies themselves. We have a great example of this, and I think it's there for a reason. In the 11th chapter of Genesis, there's a group of guys that go build a city, and building a city is a good thing. Building cities bring about flourishing. But it says in the scripture, they said, let's build a city with a tower that rises to the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. See, they were doing flourishing to glorify themselves. Let me tell you, in this town, Washington, there are a lot of people that are doing flourishing to glorify themselves. But biblical flourishing doesn't do that. It glorifies God. It serves the common good, and it furthers his kingdom. That's the difference. The amazing thing, you can see two people doing exactly the same thing for completely different motives. We need to make sure the motives of our heart are pure, that we're bringing about flourishing that glorifies God, serves the the common good, and, and, and furthers his kingdom. J.R.R. Tolkien, the Lord of the Rings author, said that we were put here to do something. God made something out of nothing. We can't do that, but he expects us to make something out of the something he's given us. Everyone in this room, God has given you gifts, talents, opportunities. All those are for one thing, to bring about flourishing, to reweave shalom. And we don't want to miss opportunities to do that. See, this idea uh, of our calling, there's an expectation within that of human achievement. Flourishing is about doing things, about building things, about making things, about building relationships, uh, building buildings, starting companies. All those things have to do with flourishing. And often God calls each one of us to do a little tiny piece of it. See, the problem is, You can't go out and flourish by yourself. Flourishing only takes place in community because that's the way God made us. Remember the story of uh, Tom Hanks and the castaway, right? He's on this beautiful desert island. There's plenty of food, plenty of water. The weather's great. Uh, It's where most of us would want to go on vacation. But does he flourish? No. Why? Because it's not good for man to be alone. Man was made to work with other men and women to bring about flourishing in community. Shalom does not happen by yourself. That's why we're here together. That's why we come here as the body of Christ. So we might be edified on Sunday when we're the church gathered so that we can be salt and light tomorrow when we're the church scattered and make a difference. Let me me close with um, a story and a quote. We believe that Jesus healed the blind men, right? We believe he fed the 5,000. Nod your head, it makes me feel better. I'm, I'm a Presbyterian. You don't have to say amen. Uh, we're the frozen chosen. We don't, you know, for a reason. We don't want to get too excited here in church. But, uh, but I do want to know you're with me. So we believe that, right? I'm in the right crowd. Okay, 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 good, good. <clears throat> so Jesus healed the blind man. Jesus fed the 5,000. Did Jesus heal everybody that was sick in Israel when he was there on the face of the earth? No. 
Did he feed everyone that was hungry in Israel when he was there? No. Could he have? Of course he could have. He was the son of God. He could have done anything he wanted to. So the real question that we should ask ourselves is why didn't he? Now, Art Lindsay was here a couple months ago, and Art would have told you, as a good theologian, he would have said, well, Jesus was demonstrating his power and authority as the son of God on earth, and all, all that's true. But I think there's a simpler explanation. I'm a simpler guy than Art, so I think this is a simpler explanation that speaks to what we've been talking about today. Talked about the four-chapter gospel. What chapter was Jesus in when he was here? He was in the chapter of redemption, same chapter we live in. What do we say the chapter of redemption was about? Chapter of redemption is about showing people the way things could be. When Jesus heals the blind man, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's blind. When he feeds the 5,000, he's showing them there could be a time when no one's hungry. And we as disciples of Christ are to do likewise. We're to go out into the world and do things that bring about flourishing, do things that reweave shalom, because by doing so, we give a glimpse to people that don't know any better of the way things could be. Let me tell you, that is one of the most powerful things you can do, because when that's attached to the verbal expression of the gospel of grace, it changes things radically. There's a um, social science called, um, now I'm blanking on what it's called, Minority Influence. And I had a friend tell me the other day, he said, you know, Hugh, if we could just get 20% of the population of the United States to be committed Christians, we could change the world. I said, no, we don't need to do that. This, this um, science of minority influence says, if you can get 1% of the population committed to something, they can change the other 99%. They can have that big an influence. So can we get 1% of Christians today to believe that we can change the culture? If we do, we can change it by the power of God working within us. Now, here's the interesting thing. The social scientists go on to say one of the key things is that the 1% have to be seen as a positive influence by the 99%. It's a real problem when you talk about the church today. Because, see, we're not seen as a positive influence like we were seen for 1,900 years. Because why? Because we're out in the refugee camp hunkering down until Jesus comes. We're not in the midst of the culture reweaving shalom. Something we've got to do if we want to make a difference. It's what God's called us to do. It's why he put us on this planet. Let me use one last quote. This is from T.J. Moore, who writes for Breakpoint magazine. He writes, so no matter what your job or whatever your work might be, God intends that you should devote your labors to something greater than your personal interest, greater than personal economic prosperity or social good alone. God intends your work, whatever that might be, to contribute to the restoration of the creation and the people in it, to raising life on this blue planet to a higher state of beauty and goodness and truth, reflecting the glory of God in our very midst. Work for the shalom of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it has shalom, you too will have shalom. Pray with me.
Father, we acknowledge that you've called us to do something really difficult. You've called us to go into the workplace tomorrow and reweave shalom and do it to glorify you, not ourselves. Father, we find that difficult. And if it was by our own strength that we had to do it, we would be lost uh, even today. But Father, we know that you've equipped us with the power of your Holy Spirit working within each one of us. And that you've given us gifts and talents and you've called us to step back into our jobs, step back into the work we do in our families and the communities, to, to re even the work we do in the church here, to reweave shalom, to bring about flourishing to people who will never really understand the truth of your gospel, but nevertheless are part of your beautiful creation. Father, we pray that you would teach us how to do that, each and every one, so that why we might be a blessing to others and through that blessing, glorify you and further your kingdom in this place, in this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue worshiping God. Please stand and let's glorify him with our voices and instruments as we praise him and thank him.